Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm with your co-host Paul Anderson here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you this week? I'm pretty good, man. I just uh, speed ate a giant pizza before we started recording this. So like I'm getting that thing where I get energized to do the show. As you know, Paul, I'm you know enthusiastic about talking about movies, but then you get the hit of like the dough and the toppings and stuff and it might slow me down. So I'm going to be fighting that. Uh, how about you? I think you were sounding a little bit jaded, not throwing shade just before we started recording how are you feeling uh hugely jaded before we started recording i felt i was I had a headache coming on i've got a big in this incredible hulk mug for listeners at home uh is the goes back to the ang lee incredible hulk film and it has survived since that film came out in 2003 so this mug is still going no one's broken it no one smashed it i've cursed this now so next week i'll probably I'll be missed the show because i'll be missing my very old hulk mug that i've broken i filled it up with coffee i'm keen to be here the other thing that makes me excited to be here as well is um, we've got some new music, uh, Pete, which you would know about, and listeners will probably have noticed at the top of the show, uh, which is nice. So I just wanted to give a big thank, give a big thank you to Rupert Cole for composing that for us. Um, I think it fits the show a lot better. So that's exciting news. So I'm buzzed now. I'm ready to go. <laughs> well. Yeah, I, I can second that for sure. And I mean, we've had the same intro music on this show for what seems like an eternity now, but at least a good few years. Uh, so it's good to freshen things up. And, you know, with that in mind, it's going to be a fresh show, Paul. We have got a double feature for today, as you're well aware. We're going to feature both uh, The Dig, which has premiered on Netflix over the last week or so, and also uh, from Netflix, Malcolm and Marie, one that I think has been, let's say, divisive until we get to the review. But before all of that, we have regular features in the show, one of which is going to be popcorn movies. We'll talk about what we've been watching in the last week and a bit since the last record. And before all of that, we generally go into the foyer and talk a little bit of film news. Paul, is there any particular film news for you this week? There is something that's completely caught me by surprise when prepping for this podcast. Um, we talked uh, a few weeks back about, I think, the... Eternal or Eternals, the new one of the new mar- upcoming Marvel films, was on your list of possibly most anticipated list of the year, if I remember rightly. Um, and this is obviously a Marvel film directed by a uh, director Chloe Zhao, who is, to my mind, one of the best directors working today. I think she's absolutely fantastic. So, the ride is great. Nomadland, as I said, I was lucky enough to see it at film festival last year. So it's hopefully out soon. It might be out on streaming. I'm confused as to what films are coming out when at this point. Uh, but it's certainly it's certainly around somewhere. It's great. Um, so Chloe Zhao has been signed up by Universal too, and I am excited for this. To t- tackle a new version of, of Dracula, this is um, thanks to an article I've picked up on Empire. Um, this is, it, she's looking to write and direct a sci-fi western uh, take on the Dracula legend. Now, Chloe Zhao directing anything is, is great news. Chloe Zhao directing a sci-fi western take on Dracula. Uh, my Your favourite phrase of mine, Pete, colour me excited for this one. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, I, I would jump more on board had I caught up with Nomadland already, which I haven't. Uh, Nomadland, it says in front of me, Paul, that it releases March, I think March 19th in the UK officially. So uh, not quite there yet. But yeah, definitely down with uh, what sounds like a pretty exciting project. And of course, with the Eternals, which you mentioned, because um, not least that has Angelina Jolie in a, in a superhero movie, which is kind of cool. Um, but yeah, what we know so far as you've outlined is futuristic sci-fi Western um, based on, of course, the iconic character of Dracula. And I wonder how far off this is going to be, because in the current climate, who is anyone's guess, right? This could be 2023. Well, I would, I, I, it's, well you don't know, do you? Because he, I imagine the Eternals is nigh on finished because it's been, well, I think it was due, I don't know when it was due, the Marvel release schedule was all over the shop now, so... I imagine it was either due late last year or early this originally, I think. So I imagine that's finished. Obviously, Nomadland's out and finished. So um, it might be that Zal jumps straight on to this. Um, or maybe she does something a bit more independent and kind of independent-spirited in the in the meantime. But either way, I think this is, this is going to be interesting. As I said, with her filmmaking style, I'm intrigued to see what she does with a big-budget blockbuster. So this is, yeah, exciting times, I think. So And, yeah, if you haven't checked out our films, like the, either of them, then... Um, yeah, be, be be very excited for Nomad Land, and the ride is great as well. So yeah, I mean, I I'm pretty sure this will, the Dracula project will be at least 2022 because we've got the Eternals currently. It says on the IMDb in post production uh, still. So 5th of November 2021 US release date for the Eternals, which could be end of the year, even the start of 2022 in the UK. Which means that with the press cycle being the way that it is, I, I'm guessing later 2022 maybe. But yeah. w- we'll see, and we'll come back to it as we do in due course, um, nearer to the time as well. Uh, yeah, anything else? We should mention, shouldn't we, Paul, the passing of Christopher Plummer. Um, Christopher Plummer, of course, passed away over the last week at the age of 91, uh, known for things like The Sound of Music, and recently, of course, uh, All the Money in the World, um, in which he gave a performance, I think, that sort of stood head and shoulders above the film itself, if I remember our thoughts on on that movie. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think he's, in, he's, he's certainly one of my favourite actors in terms of having a, a screen presence. Star Trek Undiscovered Country, he's he's superb as a um, Shakespeare-quoting Klingon. Um, he, he's a man who's whose presence was felt in every every film that he's in. If you wanted to immediate gravitas, you'd go to Christopher Plummer. Um, so, I, yeah, I really, really respected him as an actor. I really enjoyed his work. Um, and, you know, may he... May he rest in peace. Um, and certainly a loss to uh, a loss to the industry. Yeah, certainly. I mean, near seven decades of of work, um, an incredibly impressive career, and one that I'm sure we'll revisit time and time again as the time goes forward. So yeah, uh, R.I.P. Christopher Plummer. Paul, anything else in this section that you wanted to get in there? Um, nothing that jumps out at me to be honest. Of this week, I said film news is fairly slow at the moment. In term, well, unless we want to just talk about delays and new dates again, which I don't really because it's starting to get me down. So <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll skip it for this week and come back to that kind of fun next week on the on the show. Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, although, uh, oh, I did want to drop in that Donald Trump has uh, left the Screen Actors Guild uh, before he gets kicked out. I enjoyed uh, that headline, if not <laughs> delving too much into that story on the show. But uh, we will then take a tiny little break and we'll be right back with a section of the show that you know it's called Popcorn Movies right after this. <laughs> Welcome back after that break. Uh, as Pete mentioned before the show, this is the section called Popcorn Movies. This is where we talk about films of any age, uh, any films that we've watched really, either since the last uh, podcast or in the last seven days. 
Um, I've been kind of hooked on Ozark, but uh, you know, as I always tell Pete, this is not a TV show podcast, so I'm not going to talk too much about that. Um, so yeah, Pete, I'll let you go first. Um, what have you been watching? Well, I'll kick off with one that I know you saw quite a while before I caught up with it. This is um, Racer and the Jailbird, a film that I was really looking forward to from director Michael Roskam. Michael Roskam, I know from The Drop, uh, that Tom Hardy movie with uh, Numi Rapace from a few years back, which I was kind of middling on. I thought the kind of um, narrative beats and some of the subtext were a bit heavy handed and Lo and behold, here comes this one. Um, Race from the Jailbird is a very strange film, in my opinion, Paul, because at the centre of it, you've got Matthias Schoenartz, who is both, um, you know, high cheekboned uh, sort of statuesque fella, who also tends to take these roles which sort of play against type. Rather than playing up to his pretty boy looks, he piles on the muscle and plays kind of um, brooding, dangerous figures a lot of the time. And the same is true here. He plays this career criminal alongside a new love interest pl played by Adele Exarchopoulos, who people will know from Blue is the Warmest Colour. Uh, and they're drawn to each other. Now, she is nominally a race driver in the movie, hence the racer and the jailbird, rather on-the-nose translation of the original <laughs> title. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the original title, I think, is called something like um, The Faithful or something to, the, to that effect. Um, but this one, Racer and the Jailbird. Now... It starts off as what seems to be this kind of exhilarating setup where you've got someone who is inevitably going to end up being a getaway driver, right? She's got the transferable skills and a man who's getting drawn back into the underworld that he tried to turn his back on. But by the end of the film, it's unraveled into this like bizarre kind of, um, I don't know, weepy movie of the week kind of lifetime movie thing where the Exarchopolis character undergoes a, an illness, um, not to spoil too much. Uh, and we have what is a, like a 90 minute film drawn out to fully two hours and 10 minutes. It's a really odd one, man, because Adele Exarchopolis, I think, is a good actress. And I'll talk about her in another review in Popcorn today, actually. Matthias Schoenartz, I like, if not really like, in almost everything that he does. And he's done with the same director, the movie Bullhead, which I haven't got to yet and probably should because I think it's better reviewed than this is. But this movie is like almost unique in how much it fluffs its setup, in my opinion. It completely runs out of gas to, to make a, you know, pun on the, the racing of the title. I mean, did you like this? I came, to be honest, I, I struggle to remember it, which, you know, is not a good sign when you, uh, not a good sign when someone brings up a film. I'm probably a better judge of actually what you thought of it, however many years later, if you can't really remember much about it. I remember, I think it, I think the film looked good from memory. I like the performances, but yeah, it, it is a strange, a strange narrative turn of events, I think. Um, I, I definitely came away with that feeling. And more than that, I can't remember a great deal about it, Pete, I'll be honest. Yeah, it's. I mean, go back sometime, I guess, if you've got a spare couple of hours, because it's just terribly written, in my opinion. It's terribly written. So I think you're right. Like, the two central performers do their best with the material, by and large. Um, I think Exarchopolis struggles a little bit as it gets towards the way that they handle plot events later on. Uh, but just a really fucking odd one and just kind of squandered potential in my opinion um this sits on a meta score of 50 and i think that kind of tells a story um and i can't argue with that middling review because at best this is middling for me if not 
pretty laughably terrible at, at stages in the, the development of the plot. So that one's Race from the Jailbird. Catch up with it. Form your own opinion. Let me know why I'm wrong. Uh, Paul, what have you got first? Uh, I've got a sequel that I, for, for whatever reason I have wanted to watch for some time now, and I don't really understand why. It's one of those films, Pete, that when you go, you know, when you could go back into supermarkets, when you could spend some time, when you could overhear conversations in the pub, everyone was going. Why don't they do a sequel to Now You See Me? I don't know if you if you found this at all, but I, you know everywhere just the coffee, water cooler talk. Everyone wanted a sequel to the average and completely unbelievable and absolutely nonsensical Now You See Me. Well, they delivered a sequel. This came back out way back out in twenty sixteen. I've just got to it, so maybe I wasn't that keen to see it after all. Um, this is directed by John M. Chu. We've got most of the original cast back here. Or Isla Fisher hasn't returned in place. Well, I say in a place she plays a different role, but we've got. Uh, Lizzie Kaplan um, playing a, a different female character in here. Um, Daniel Radcliffe appears here on, on as a villain. Um, I mean, I, I don't understand the the appeal of these films. To be honest, I don't. There needs to be. Then I mean the the I get. I understand they're about magic. I get that, and therefore you need some kind of spectacular tricks. And the film kind of looks cool in places. It's very much. I mean, it's entirely style over substance, I guess. But these you expect to believe that these four horsemen um can pull off magic that is just impossible. And I think that's that's my problem with with this series of films. There's rumored to be a third one on the way, but my problem with this series of films Yay. is what they do is it's just completely implausible. There's no you don't sit there and go oh I I know I can work out how they do that trick. It's just nonsense. Um, just nonsense. It's, I don't know. The cast are entertaining. Oh no, they're not because Woody Harrelson's in this twice, and uh, he's when he plays his. I mean, his twin. Woody Harrelson plays his twin. Spoiler horn in there. Um, and his twin is possibly the most annoying Woody Harrelson performance for a number of years, and that's saying something. When Woody Harrelson dials it up to eleven, um, he's not always the easiest man to watch. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's an adequate sequel to an adequate original i guess if you like that kind of thing uh but i won't be rushing to see number three yeah have you seen Zombieland double tap paul because i will take you to task on your harrelson's <laughs> worst performance comment uh if you see that one although uh, we should point out john m cho the director of that movie uh, now you see me too went on in his next project to direct crazy rich asians which i for one would say is really good and much more worth your time so i still haven't caught up with that so maybe i should have watched that instead of this but absolutely you should have yeah uh, another one you should have watched instead of that paul is a film called called Sybil, which is currently available around the world on the movie platform. Sybil is a movie from a female director called Justin Triette, who I was aware of because she previously directed a film that I talked about on this here show called In Bed with Victoria. It was a character study of a woman sort of trying to hold her life together. She was a lawyer. She had um, a lot of issues, let's say, circling around her in her personal life. The star of that film I found to be a pretty compelling screen presence. Her name is Virginie Efira. Virginie Efira, I guess. Uh, and she returns here in Sybil alongside um, a couple of other people that you may uh, recognise, not least Sandra Huller, of course, um, from Tony Erdman, the, the daughter in Tony Oh, Erdman. brilliant. Yes, absolutely. And so uh, what this is, is it's... Uh, oh, and Adele Exarchopoulos, who I just talked about in the last review, is also in this movie. So what happens in the film Sybil is that the character played by Efira is a psychotherapist, but she's leaving the profession to become or return to being a writer. 
because this is a European movie, we have a cold open on a dining sequence in which a verbose man is telling her why now is the absolute worst time to be a writer and why being a writer is effectively a waste of your life. Um, because you'll have a load of ideas, it'll all amount to nothing and no one cares. You should stay in psychotherapy. What she's doing instead is shedding all of her clients. So she's got down from a pool of sort of 30 clients down to just a few, one of which is a young boy that she's working with through uh, some bereavement issues. Into the mix comes the Exarchopolis character who is a movie star who has been referred by a hospital because she's really at her wits end. She needs support, she needs talking therapy, she needs a psychotherapist. And so Ephira's character reluctantly accepts to take her on against her better judgment. And from this point becomes kind of weirdly pulled into the orbit of Adele Exarchopoulos's movie star. She wants to know all about her. She wants to know about her private life. She starts secretly recording their therapy sessions so that she has record which she can use basically as material for her writing. But the further and further she gets drawn in, the more she finds herself out of her depth and in so deep in someone's life that she has been flown out to the island of Stromboli where uh, this movie actress is uh, filming uh, a movie at this time directed by Sandra Huller. But uh, final sort of uh, spanner in the works here, uh, Exarchopolis character is actually having an affair or has been having an affair with her co-star who is married to the director. So uh, we get basically a big shit show of emotions on the island of Stromboli, made famous, of course, by Ingrid Bergman. I don't think that is an accident here. Um, and I just I like this a lot. I mean, it's kind of over the top at times. Um, it's kind of melodramatic at times. But I think Virginia Fira is a really good central performer. And the three women at the centre of this movie play off each other really well, I think. So you get like black comedy. You get some great exchanges on the island and off the island as well. And you get the kind of drama that I absolutely lap up. Um, so I would recommend this one, but I understand it is for my, you know, um, Euro quote unquote art house, quote unquote films about people type um, audience. But that one is Sybil uh, on movie at the moment, if you're interested. Paul, what have you got next? Uh, I would, I'm going to guess, I haven't seen Sybil, but I'm going to throw uh, a guess out here that the film I'm about to talk about next is very different to Sybil. Um, this is uh, Psycho Gorman. Um, and that is indeed Psycho Gorman, not your Gorman as in G-O-R-E, Gorman. Uh, so it is exactly how it sounds. Um, this is the latest from writer-director Stephen Kostansky, um, who was one of the duo behind The Void, uh, which is a film I really, really enjoyed um, when it came out a few years back. So I was quite excited to watch this. Um, it very much sits in kind of um, campy cult territory for sure. So if you're not into kind of cheap physicals, well, to say cheap is maybe unfair. Uh, check out the trailer if you don't like it, it's it's an acquired taste shall we say i can say that from the get-go so this um this essentially tells the story of um uh a young a, a boying a, a sibling a young siblings uncover uh a powerful gem that unleashes um that unleashes this creature uh who they affectionately refer to as psycho gorman onto the planet earth um and he try he you know, being being like a being of ultimate evil that's just interested in destroying everything, kind of attempts to take over the earth. The brother and sister duo kind of try and change his mind. Um, it's very silly. It's very very gory in places. Um, there's some great. 
it's I, I'm doing a bad job of describing it because the film is absolutely bonkers. So forgive me there. It's quite it's quite a difficult one to set up to be honest without um without a without spoiling anything. So yeah, I mean if if you've seen the void, then you know that this this team the you know the team behind that are capable of some great physical effects. There is some nice effects work here. There's kind of a Power Rangers feel to some of like the men in some of the suits and stuff, but it's it's quite charming. Um, in places to be honest that I, what I will say is I thought when I saw the trailer I thought I would love this and it, it seems bizarre to say it for for a silly film with with some with some great and there's some superb gore here as I said the physical effects are great it's a lot of fun it does capture like the spirit of the 80s for a film like this and that's not, I'm not saying that you go into a film of this nature looking for incredible acting and incredible performances but they need to be perfunctory and the majority of the cast here are so bad that it's it's neither funny it's not funny it's not charming it's just distracting um and that at times make this makes this uh, probably a less funny and more difficult watch than it should have been um but you know if you're going to like this film you've probably heard of it already before you've heard of it from me and you're going to watch it regardless of what i say um so no there is there is things to like here i just wish the acting was better because i think it would have been more enjoyable overall but yeah uh check it out if you're into your cult certainly into your cult horror comedies it's still worth a look so. Yeah, yeah. The the title Psycho Goreman certainly announces itself as the kind of film that it might be that you're <laughs> yes, getting into <laughs> with with that thing. Uh, cool. The next one for me is going to sound perhaps a tiny bit like the last one I reviewed. This one also available on Mubi. It is called Queen of Hearts. Um, I don't know if you've bumped into this one on there, Paul, but Queen of Hearts is directed again by a female director, this time May L. Tuke, or Tuki, um, who is not a director that I was familiar with before the, this project, but it tells the story of a woman who is, um, the film is set in Denmark, I believe, uh, a woman who is married. Um, she is the second wife of her husband. She's uh, middle-aged, perhaps in her mid-40s, let's say, late 40s. And um, into her life comes her son-in-law. So her husband's son from his previous marriage, who comes to stay with him, them from Sweden, where he's been living, because he's basically... For, gone off the rails. He's, you know, he's been spending time on the wrong side of the tracks. He's been hanging around with ne'er do wells, Paul, and he needs to be straightened out by maybe getting a bit of time away, uh, reconnecting with his dad, and of course, spending some time with who is effectively his stepmother. How could it possibly go wrong? Well, it could go wrong if at some point those two people, son or stepson and stepmother end up having sexual intercourse with each other couldn't it paul uh, that wouldn't one, be, be yeah that wouldn't be <laughs> ideal for the uh, for the family uh, situation and into that comes the fact that at a point when they're already into their affair uh, their secret and obviously very much illicit affair they're seen kissing in a kind of corner behind the house by a guest at a function. They have this beautiful big home in the in the countryside, but they're seen kissing or they're seen having this like moment. The guy in question, the boy effectively, is about perhaps 19 years old. I'm not even sure that, maybe 17, 18 years old. He's very young. And so the woman who sees them says, well, this is disgusting. I can't have anything to do with you. And then just sort of fades into the background and you think at any moment, the house of cards could just be knocked down because she'll tell someone and this thing's going to, you know, this shit's going to hit the fan. So the film really then goes on to deal with how our central character played quite brilliantly by Trina Deerholm 
how she'll go to almost any lengths to save the status quo, to protect the status quo and to protect her reputation, not only in her community, but very directly in her own marriage and her relationship with her husband. Um, I thought this was, again, a really good piece of drama. It's uh, perhaps a darker piece of drama. In fact, certainly a darker piece of drama than Sybil. Uh, it goes to some pretty dark, shadowy places. Um, but I think for its central performance and for the generally strong writing, I would very much recommend it. And it's been relatively well reviewed. I think I might like it more than the average person, perhaps. But I think it's certainly worth checking out if you get the chance. It's on movie. Movie is called uh, Queen of Hearts. Next up and the last one for me, I, I, I told you off air it had been a, you know, a strong week. Um, I, I, another film I've never got to, um, but I've heard a lot about is Alex Proyas Knowing from 2009, starring... Uh, Nicholas Cage is an MIT professor who um, inexplicably links a list of numbers from a time capsule to predict past future, past and future events. Is that what this film's about? I think so. Um, it's just, you know, it's, I don't know. I'd, I'd heard, I'd heard bad things about this. And Alex Proyas is a director that I used to have a lot of time for. The Crow and Dark City were certainly two of my favourites. Um, going back to probably my late teens and early twenties. I, I mean, they still stand up. I still think they're good films. To be fair, um, but yeah, certainly a director I had a lot of time for. And then, um, of late, as you know, massively gone off the boil. I think. Um, and maybe this this was one of the first. I forget which came first, whether this or iRobot. In fairness, but neither are fantastic. Um, in my humble opinion. Um, and this is just, I don't know, Nicolas Cage is being quite Nicolas Cage-esque, kind of phoning in a performance. It's not quite as nonsensical as the number 23, but we're in very similar t similar territory here. It's, it's just this, to make these films work, again, it goes kind of goes back to what I've said about Now You See Me Too. There needs to be a suspension of disbelief that to you understand you're watching a film you understand you're watching a piece of fiction but you need to kind of be able to have some investment into what's going on and it needs to make some deal of sense unless the film's called psycho gorman of course um but yeah the film needs to make some some form of sense this just doesn't this just it stretches and it stretches it thinks it's very clever i think is probably my my probably biggest problem with this film um which we might come to in a review of a certain film later on pete but hey ho um yeah it, it's just it's got grand ideas it doesn't land them and it was fine it wasn't quite as bad as it had been made it had been made out to be but again i certainly won't be rushing to watch it Watch it twice. Um, I'm going to have to watch some good films this week, I think, because I've not had a, not had a, not a strong week. <laughs> nice. Uh, the next one that I'll get to then, Paul, is one that I'm pretty sure you've said that you've already seen, so you can jump in as well. This is, as far as I know, the directorial feature debut of Dave Franco, uh, written and uh, excuse me, I should say directed and co-written by Dave Franco, co-written with who else but Joe Swanberg. All of these kinds of movies are going to be co-written by Joe Swanberg. That's kind of a given. Uh, this one is very much an ensemble in the style of something like uh, Joshy. Joshy was a movie that also starred Alison Brie. Alison Brie, of course, being the wife of Dave Franco. It's all pretty cosy here, Paul. Uh, then Dan Stevens is here. And most interestingly to me in this ensemble is Sheila Vand, who, of course, is the lead in A Girl Walked Home Alone at Night and is just compelling on screen, I think. Uh, the setup, as you're aware, Paul, is that this group go to a stay in what is, let's say, an Airbnb rental. I don't think they name the company in the in the film. Uh, and it seems too good to be true. There was that Aaron Paul movie recently that had the same basic setup. You go 
into a place. It looks amazing. Uh, turns out that it's too good to be true and bad shit's going to happen. Uh, when they get there, they're greeted by a fella who claims to be the brother of the owner. There's a bit of sort of racial tension straight away because he's turned down the application made by Sheila Van's character to rent the place and then has rented to Dan Stevens' character, of course, a white man. This causes a bit of underlining, kind of bubbling tension in the background. Uh, he leaves them to get on with enjoying their big place. They decide that they're going to do a bunch of drugs. Uh, in the night, as they do all these drugs and kind of uh, things, uh, you know, go the way that they do, there's a hookup between Dan Stevens and Sheila Vand. Uh, Dan Stevens, of course, cheating on his wife, who is the Alison Brie character here. So, so far, so to me, compelling in the sense that you've got this domestic drama. I like that kind of thing. You've got characters bouncing off each other. I like that kind of thing. And then, and then, um, what Franco decides to do with the film, I found pretty deflating in the end because it sort of turns into a, um, you know, um, oh, what are all, there's like a run of films that are about a bad physical outcome happens to a person kind of by accident during a big night and then we have to deal with the consequences type movie and um it, it turns into <laughs> yeah it it turns into that and i think very much for the worse um there's a also like a sliver element to it there's um sort of hidden cameras come into play here uh, there are honestly a nod too many for me to like too many other films um even in terms of the composition of some of the shots it, it starts to feel too much like someone who's making a show reel rather than someone who's making a sort of singular vision and i think that's to its detriment having said all that i like this ensemble of people i like some of the genres if not most of the genres that he's playing with here in terms of sort of the horror and the mystery and stuff we've seen you know uh, things like uh, mark duplass doing the creep movies where you've got a single location and people being creepy i like that shit i just think that dave franco kind of over egged this one a bit in the end uh, what did you think yeah i think i liked it i liked it um quite a lot until the until probably the ending which i i just found a bit rushed um and yeah there's there was a lot of ideas going on here and i think Towards the end, I don't think he quite knows what to make stick. So therefore, with the kind of conclusion he goes with, and without obviously not going to go into spoiler territory here, but it just felt a bit rushed and didn't quite fit. I think as a debut, though, I think it's a relatively strong debut um, for sure, and I think it, it could it could mark him out as a director to watch. I think when it when the film needs tension, it's got it. When the film needs atmosphere, it's got it. Um, so I think there there are certainly some strengths to it. Um, uh, but yeah, it fumbles the ending for me. Yeah, and I mean. Uh to his credit also Dave Franco has worked as a I believe as a producer as a writer and a director on Easy and that series is really good like if you want to you know anybody's interested in checking out kind of hipster urban drama uh, you know almost like a, an urban soap opera set around hipster lives uh, but much better than that sounds then check out Easy I think it's on Netflix still but uh, yeah he's cut his teeth he'll do better stuff than this this was okay uh, maybe not loads better than that for me but uh, not bad I tell you what is quite bad Paul Miss Barla. Miss Barla is the remake of the film of the same name from just like a, I don't know, half dozen years ago or so. Uh, this one has been remade for I'm not sure what reason by Catherine Hardwick, who makes strange choices. Catherine Hardwick, of course, directed that movie 13. Which about was so good. So good. Yeah, 13 year old <laughs> girls sniff glue and punch each other in the face and then went on to make like the nativity story next, I think, after and that. And Twilight at some point. Yeah, and Twilight, of course. Uh, so here she's decided to remake this. I'm not sure. Maybe it was a good holiday opportunity. The location stuff is really nice. Um, here we've got the central character played by Gina Rodriguez, who is, you know, absolutely 
um, I don't know, she glows on screen, evidence of which was in Kajillionaire last year that we talked about on this. But here, it's just kind of blah. Like, she is going to enter the Baja California beauty pageant in Mexico. Uh, she doesn't want to do that, but she ends up having to do that because she goes over with her friend to work as a sort of makeup and hairstylist and then instantly gets embroiled in cartel drama. Like, instantly. Like, they go to a nightclub and then all of a sudden gunmen charge in. Everyone in Mexico here seems like a slimy criminal scumbag murderer, which is not good. How does uh, this compare to the original? I haven't seen either version. I haven't honest, seen but, it yet. Okay. You know, it's it's one of those I've been meaning to see. And from, from all accounts, not well is the, the short answer to your question. I think that one's a little bit grittier, perhaps. I think it's maybe a little bit less shiny than this thing. Having said all that, there's a bit at the end, both my wife and I sign off on the fact that Gina Rodriguez, wearing the dress she wears at the end, wielding an automatic weapon and just like dropping fools, is worth the price of admission, which <laughs> admittedly was zero here because it's on Netflix. But uh, yeah, Miss Barlow is just one of those where you think, oh, I've heard the first film or the original is good. I should have just watched that because this is quite boring weirdly boring uh, talking about something that's weirdly boring paul another one i can squeeze in greenland uh heralded by no other than mark kermode as uh, some sort of fantastic turning of the corner when it comes to disaster it's movies <laughs> it is not that is it this is on amazon prime video right now um it involves gerard butler this time playing an everyman rather than a sort of everyman turned superhero uh he's the husband to morena baccarin's uh, concerned wife has she ever done that before i think so uh and yeah in the mix we've got a kid with an illness would you believe um and they've got to try to stop themselves from being, uh, from being obliterated by a comet shower called, Paul, Clark. Um, so if they can get away from Clark, then they would be safe. The only way to get away from Clark is to go underground into a government bunker. And believe it or not, Butler's character, who apparently plans skyscraper construction, has been called by the government, selected to be one of the people who will be saved for future rebuilding of skyscrapers, I guess. This is shit, man. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I expected more, but I think I expected more. I saw Mark Kermode cover it on the film review show for the BBC and I was like, oh, hello, this is available right now. It's sort of a bit of brainless action. Well, you know, I did say way back when I covered it as a popcorn movie myself that it has got some big fault. There's very little disaster in this disaster movie. It was one of my biggest problems yeah. with it. Very little disaster in it. Like it, it I mean, when, when the disasters happen, it looks good enough, but there's so little disaster and... You know, like, Butler's not a strong enough actor to carry these dramatic scenes, the dramatic weighty scenes. And also there's just so much silliness in it. Yeah. So much silliness. The way that, as, as you mentioned, we, we were talking off air about um, the character, the, you know, the ordinary, the ordinary decent sort of working man who then just suddenly decides to kidnap Marie Bacar yeah, Marina Bacarin's daughter. Like, there's just so much silliness in it. And it, it just becomes very boring in places. It's about an hour too long as well from memory. But um, no, I'm totally with you. I did not not particularly enjoy Greenland, if I'm honest. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of those, man. Here's a little tip for anyone, if you hadn't clocked this already. Think about why a film's title is that film's title. And it gives you sometimes an indication of the kind of proposition that you have in front of you. So this movie's called Greenland, Paul. Why? Because they go to Greenland to be safe at the end of the film. I mean, yeah, okay, if you want to overcredit it, it could be Greenland because growth, new growth or something like that. But like, no. They're going to go to Greenland. So what should we call it? Greenland. 
because what else did we have? Clark, Comet, call it Comet Shower. That would sound cooler. That would sound all right. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I hate to say it, but I reckon Geostorm's a better film. I don't know. Maybe we can do a whole show on it. <laughs> it's, Ge Geostorm is a more exciting film than this. And that was pretty boring and gave me a headache. But it was more exciting than this thing. I did, did not care for it. Um, the last one for me today, and um, until we get to the next bit where I'll talk some more about other films, is uh, a film that I revisited, Paul. It's called Straight Heads. Do you know about Straight Heads? I think you've talked to me about Straight Heads before. I did, I could, as, as ever, I kind of spy, I do occasionally spy on your letterbox profile to see what we're in for when we do the feature reviews. And I noticed um, mm. Straight Heads has popped up again. And I thought, he's mentioned that before and then yeah to remind me <laughs> well uh, paul the, the great the great director dan reed who looks like a sort of nightmare version of ross kemp uh he has uh, made such projects as terror in mumbai or frontline uh oh frontline sorry or children of the tsunami or we've got terror at the mall or the paedophile hunter. So, you know, the kind <laughs> of guy that perhaps we're dealing with. I shit you not, man. This is a rape revenge drama starring Gillian Anderson and Danny Dyer. Um, that that's probably all you need to know. I mean, how did this happen? This was released in 2007, although it looks like a movie from about 1997, honestly. Uh, it involves a situation in which Danny Dyer is putting up security cameras in the home of rich client Gillian Anderson's character. Uh, and she then decides that he would be an appropriate person to take to a lavish work-related uh, do. And there's supposed to be sexual tension. They build this sexual tension in a very strange moment when they're on the way and she pulls over because she needs to, as she says, very directly and forcibly, take a piss. And she then does that whilst looking directly at Danny Dyer uh, at the side of the car on the street. Um, that obviously pushes the sexual tension over the edge so they have to consummate the situation once they get to the party. <laughs> And then uh, an awful, awful, awful attack happens on the pair of them. And the film somewhat, I guess, if you were to credit it as much as you possibly can, looks to investigate the ways in which um, the desire for revenge changes people and the way in which we react in different ways. Not unlike something like Gaspar Noé's film Irreversible. I think this director might have seen that movie, Paul. I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, it's not in reverse chronological order. I'll give you that. But yeah, I mean... On one level, this is atrocious and never should have been made. There is a sequence that happens with Agent Scully, the barrel of a shotgun and a man's anus, which you you couldn't just you couldn't dream it up if it didn't <laughs> exist in the actual world of films. But then at the same time, there is an attempt in moments to I guess, think about the psychological ramifications of violence. And Gillian Anderson is fine here. I mean, she's a good actress. Danny Dyer is straight terrible, though, as you might expect. Uh, yes, straight heads. Apparently, uh, the Urban Dictionary tells me means people who are thinking straight or have got their heads on straight. I guess that figures. Uh, this is 
Not good, uh, but a kind of oddity. The kind of one, you know, like that movie with Uma Thurman, even Cowgirls Sing the Blues, yeah. about the hitchhiker with massive thumbs, where if you tell someone <laughs> about that, they're like, that isn't a movie. Well, when you're like, yeah, you know that movie with Scully and Danny Dyer off EastEnders, where they rape a guy with a gun, that really exists and it's this movie. I think that's a nice way to end popcorn movies, isn't it? Paul? I think, I, yeah. I, I mean, how, how else would you end popcorn movies other than with straight heads? Um, which, to be honest, you've actually made me want to watch it. I don't know if that was the intention or not. But um, yeah, you know, I've got, I've got a spot of time after this show. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll give straight heads a look. Well, you, you've been warned. You've been warned. <laughs> so at your own risk, uh, take it on. Well, that brings us to the end of popcorn movies. Uh, we'll be back after this break. So we are back for this week's feature reviews, first of which is Malcolm and Marie. This one has been out for just a few days on the Netflix platform, coming from Barry Levinson's son, Paul, Sam Levinson, the director of a previously assassinated film, Assassination Nation, that I absolutely loathed. But I'm not going to let that colour my judgment here as we go in to talk about this one, Malcolm and Marie. Now, this is a film that tells the story of a couple. Uh, the male in the couple is played by John David Washington, of course, Denzel's son. Uh, there's a father-son motif going on here. Uh, John David Washington, who here is a film director, who has just premiered his, what I think is his first feature, perhaps? Is that uh, right? I get the impression he's probably made more films, but this is, I think he has made right. features previously, but this is kind of his big break, I think, is kind of the impression I got from yeah, that. I yeah, think that, I think you're accurate, actually. Yeah, it's a good correction. Yeah, I think that perhaps this is maybe his most significant, or at least he believes his most significant work to date. His partner is played by Zendaya. They return to their lavish uh, home, which has been provided by the production company. So they're staying there temporarily in this location. It's absolutely stunning, the environment that they're in whilst they're there and the, shot, the shots of the place itself also pretty gorgeous. But what we have in terms of one hour and 46 minutes worth of film is essentially... Um, an ongoing rising and falling series of arguments, confrontations, disagreements between these two people as the director wrestles with the idea that the first reviews of his film are about to drop and he's going to have to see what it is people have said about his work. And he's also preemptively responding to what they may have said, what he believes they're going to say and what he thinks about the things that he believes they're going to say. There's an awful lot of words here and we're probably going to say an awful lot of words about what we think about those words. But before we get to that, here's a little clip. You know, you are the neediest man I've ever dated. But at the same time, you are also the least jealous man I've ever dated. I mean, I, I could literally be hanging on some random guy's arm and you would never think it's sexual. You just come up to me and be like, Hey, babe, what the hell are you doing? I need your help. I can't remember everybody's name here. Come on, let's go. But whose arm are you hanging That's on? That's the thing. It doesn't really matter. Is this about tonight, Marie? Mm. Kinda. Kinda? Mm. Mm. So I think the first thing that stood out to me uh, on this film, and certainly in the uh, sits in the positive col column, not that we're making columns now, obviously, but it certainly sits on the positive side of things here, is just how how great this film looks. Like it, it looks absolutely fantastic. I thought that from the the moment I saw the trailer, I was like, this is this is going to be a very well shot uh, film. It's shot on thirty five millimeter. Uh, I don't know whether it was shot on black and white or whether it was. 
there was a black and white sort of palette applied to it after the fact but it certainly is quite nice to see something shot on 35mm the presentation on Netflix you can actually see the film grain on Netflix production which is quite interesting choice for Netflix to kind of allow them to do because um, normally they have kind of cameras and stuff that they make them use so it, there's no grain that kind of thing so I think the film looks great I think from you know from a technical aspect it's difficult not to uh, not to appreciate a lot of the craft that's gone into this some of the some of the framing of shots is great some of the stuff that's kind of looking at um, John David Washington's character through windows is really nicely framed and I think the film looks you know it looks it looks like an advert which maybe you will come on to that so whether that proves to be maybe a, a distraction from what's going on later on but for the most part I think the film just looks looks absolutely fantastic Pete do you, do you agree yeah, I, I would agree. Um, I think it's um, and maybe this will go, you know, more into the um, slightly less positive column as we go forward. But I think it is a film that both looks beautiful, but is also, um, to my mind, at least very sort of self-aware in the fact that it is a film that looks nice. Um, I, I think that there's a, a sort of showiness at times to the framing of stuff here, which um, I saw uh, somebody <laughs> describe this as marriage story if it was a Calvin Klein advert. And I think that kind of gives you an idea of the sort of territory that, that we're in. But uh, yeah, I would say also in that in that sort of um, positive column that, that you started off talking about there, Paul, that um, I think here the performance, I mean, people so often, I guess, in, in not only ensemble pieces, but also a sort of two hander like this will say, oh, the performances are great, but the performances, you know, I, I would bulk at that slightly. But I think that of the two, both good as they are, I think perhaps it's Zendaya's character that I find more interesting. And I think it's Zendaya's character that I find to be maybe doing better work um, with the material. Perhaps that is to do with the fact that John David Washington is given just endless lines and I think is written as a character that we're supposed to see as an asshole, basically, like a self-absorbed asshole. I don't think this is as simple as saying that he is a mouthpiece for, for Sam Levinson. I think that maybe that would be too shallow of a reading of the movie. But at the same time, I think Zendaya does a lot with silence and uh, a lot with like reaction that she doesn't have to do by just constant verbose, you know, verbal diarrhea like her counterpart here. Um, so I liked her in the movie. I like her generally speaking. I mean, Sam Levinson's work with her on Euphoria, which was a series I tried to start watching and just realised this is not for me. Um, Assassination Nation certainly wasn't for me. I don't think this director is for me, but I didn't want to come into this just kind of shitting on it because I have a preconception about who this man is and the kind of stuff that he makes. I mean, he's all of 35 years of age, but again, that shouldn't stand against him uh, when it comes to assessing his work. So I can say that I liked the performances. I didn't love them. And I can say that I liked, for the most part, the aesthetic, although it does look like a plush, over-moneyed television commercial. Um, other than this, where to go? I mean, in terms of the actual conversations, because this is a movie of conversation, right? An argument, sure, but conversation. Were you engaged by the actual things they were saying to no. each other? Uh, would be my would be my direct and honest answer to that. I think the the issue with the issue with with films like this um, is that you know they need to be if you if if you were for me to engage with them in films of this nature, the conversations need to be convincing conversations that people would have, and I don't buy like you know we've all had arguments with our spouses, we've all had arguments with partners, we've had arguments with family, we've all had arguments with people, and an argument that sort of gets as shitty and angry as this one does. 
No one takes their turn to speak. That is not how people argue. Um, and this, this for me took a lot of the took a lot of the the believability away from this. And I just, I don't know. I just, I got a bit not lost. I got a bit bored in with some of the conversations because you could almost you're like now it's your turn to speak and now it's your turn to speak and then there'll be a showy scene. John David Washington will overact in a slightly strange way in places um, and do things that no. No, just things that I don't believe human characters would do um, in this situation and for me the film for that reason I didn't maybe it's and again you're not necessarily meant to like I don't think you're necessarily meant to like either character because Zendaya's character I think is meant to come across as perhaps a touch on the spoiled side here um, at times but I just there's no I felt the film lacked heart because if if you don't engage with the characters you're not going to particularly care if they argue or not and I think because of the way they spoke because of the things they talked about I just I, I couldn't get I couldn't really get into it I'll be honest for that reason yeah I mean there's this tension isn't there and the kind of thrust if there is that to the narrative apart from them trying to bang every now and again is uh, the fact that there's been um, some level of upset at least on her part at the uh, premiere that they've just left uh, prior to the obviously the commencement of the movie itself and she has something to say about the way that he's been acting around his leading lady because of the fact that the leading lady effectively is portraying the life of Zendaya's character as she has sort of told it to him during their relationship right she's got this history of addiction she's obviously been helped to some degree through her addiction by her partner of five years the the John David Washington character and this is all coming to a head now because she feels like maybe she's just been mined for content not like in that movie Sybil that I was talking about in popcorn movies she's been kind of mined for content by him whereas he then makes a series of incredibly vicious points about how no one is the inspiration for true art. In fact, there's an amalgamation of a load of experiences you've had where he like reels off like his sexual encounters with ex-girlfriends and stuff like that. And I mean, there was a part in the movie there that I kind of wanted to talk about, Paul, in the sense that I understand that the counter to this point will be, well, you know, people are vicious when they argue and so on. But I did, I guess, have something of an issue of the fact that the staging in this was so often... Zendaya's character is either in her vest and pants um, with a sort of nipples protruding or in the bath, naked in the bath, where John David Washington is throughout dressed in, um, you know, white shirt, black tie, black trousers, shoes. Which he's he keeps he's on. shirtless briefly once, I think, if I remember rightly. Right, yeah. right, right, right. But he basically keeps on this formal wear throughout the most of the runtime. And oftentimes he stood over her. So... On the one hand, this is a reflection of a sort of to toxic masculinity that you could see, I guess, played out all over the world on any given day. But at the same time, there seemed to be a sort of element of studied cruelty about the movie that I feel um, stepped over the line is not what I mean. But again, it comes back to this issue that I have with the sense that Sam Levinson is very much a sort of self congratulating self-regarding filmmaker as both writer and director here of course we should underline that fact and it's like I say I don't think it's so simple as to read it like oh when Washington's character is slating film critics this is the director slating film critics that's an element I guess here in the mix but it's more like the self-regard of making a black and white sort of art film in which you show a male character being 
you know, unspeakably cruel to a female character in terms of what is what amounts to about, an, you know, half the movie's worth of verbal abuse. And I mean both ways at some points, but a load of verbal abuse that then very quickly just becomes the next time that they, you know, cuddle and say, oh, it's all OK. Um, I don't know. I kind of wanted an intervention. I mean, it... I've been thinking about this, I guess, because um, of what has been reported in the last week about um, FKA Twigs and Shia LaBeouf. Do you know this stuff? Right. And so, you know, it's not to transpose one issue on the other. But at the same time, there were moments in the movie where I thought, like, this woman needs to be, um, you know, calling a a helpline. She needs to be, like, sheltered from this man. He's a scary figure. And I understand you need to put, you know, difficult topics on screen you need to put rough material on screen you have to wrestle with that and look at that directly but here it feels a bit unearned and it feels a bit like pleased with itself for doing that and that made me feel a little bit like weird inside um and not in a way where it it had maybe the depth to overcome that limitation i thought yeah i I do see where you're coming from and i know we kind of said we weren't going to do this but for me that 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 all that all the stuff that the film that the film thinks or kind of purports to be about if you watch the trailers is this breakdown of relationship but for me I kind of did feel like Sam Levins has put that in to distract from the fact that a lot of this was just a rant about look how much a I know about filmmaking and look how much I don't like film critics and that I just couldn't help but think that there's moments John David Washington character he refers to the battle for Algiers and you're like well done Sam Levinson you've seen the battle for Algiers and he references classic constantly references these classic films and I these are the bits I just felt very 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 self-indulgent and I ended up sort of I ended up kind of more frustrated with these bits thinking these are unnecessary why why is there so many rants about filmmaking here why isn't there more focus on this relationship so I it's it's a very strange film for me to be honest it's a very strange film I think. well well and, and everything's got a sort of built-in defense right like he he writes dialogue so that his female protagonist can be criticizing her partner for having an important sequence in his film wherein the female lead in the film within a film is topless but at the moment where she's like lambasting him for making that artistic choice she herself is wearing the tiniest of vest and pants and striding around the room as she does for most of the film and so it's like you want to have your cake and eat it and you want to have everybody look at you having your cake and eating it and be like yeah fuck you because I can do that and that's that's I guess my issue and like you know for all of the two hours uh, and I said this to you before we recorded but like for all of the near two hours here of of sort of self-indulgent largely self-indulgent on the part of the writer dialogue uh, assassination nation is still shit so <laughs> you know it it, it it can't be a simple riposte critics there because it's both not a strong enough one and also incorrect because that film is just bad so um yeah i i don't know man like in a way there's part of me on the most negative end that thinks like the it looking good and having a couple of actors making passably good performances at its center kind of makes me resent it more rather than less um, (laughs) because it feels like it gives a sort of sense of gravitas to a project that doesn't necessarily deserve that. On the other hand, if I don't get too embroiled in who this man is and how I don't particularly like his work, it's all right. Like I shrug at it. It's a, it's effectively a really well-staged student film about, you know, all that, you know, like in um, Closer, the heart is a fist wrapped in blood. It's, it's profound. It is profound in quotation marks. Um, So yeah, I I don't know, man, wasn't, wasn't for me. I saw it all the way through to the bitter end. And um, at the end of it all, I just thought fucking break up. 
just break up and leave each other alone and go and spend time with someone that you love and care about truly and someone that you're not going to say those things to because if you've stood over your partner and said the things that he says in this movie that you're not coming back from that or you shouldn't come back from that so i don't know call me precious didn't like it no no i'm I'm with you and again it just lands to the fact that you know whatever you think of sam levinson whatever you think of the the it just it doesn't convince as a film like there's no i think he thinks I think he thinks he's made something really important here. And I think, you know, he, he constantly refers to Barry Jenkins and Spike Lee. And I think he thinks he's kind of wants a seat with one of the greats. Um, this isn't the film that's going to put him there. It's not a complete disaster. As I say, like Zendaya and John David Washington, I think are good here. I don't think they're I'm with you. I don't think they're fantastic. There's definitely been uh, more awards worthy performances for sure. But the film has no heart for me. And that was, that was my biggest issue with it. It felt very cold. It felt very managed. And the dialogue, you know, as as much as it you know it just it just wasn't very well written i just didn't buy it as a i didn't buy it as two people arguing and as you say pete there's no way if you said those things to that person does that does your relationship come back from that so i'm with you to be honest i was i was ready to like it i like the cast i'd liked how it looked for the most part i I agree it looks a bit like an advert in places but i think it looked good but it just didn't it didn't grab me um at all which is a shame yeah, it, it is to uh, relationship breakdown movies what the bling ring is to heist movies, in my opinion. Um, and, and that's not really a good thing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Like definitely, well, I mean, with the caveat that you need to know what it is that you're getting into. Um, and if you, uh, I, I'm loath to do this on the show, but I, I kind of am going to do it, Paul. Like if you have been in a toxic relationship or are in one right now and certainly if you've been in an abusive relationship honestly i would give this one a wide berth right now like i don't see what it adds and i guess that's that's also part of the issue here um and so uh you know with that in mind otherwise form your own opinion it's malcolm and marie uh from writer director sam levinson it's on netflix now people will continue talking about it at least for a bit i suppose ideally it's not going to garner too much reward uh cred but who knows we'll see in due course but let's bounce out of this paul and get ourselves into the beautiful english countryside because after the break we have got coming up a review of the dig after this So on to our second feature review of the week. Uh, This is uh, another recent Netflix release because no one else is releasing films at the moment. So Netflix, this is one of, well, Malcolm Marie and this are one of uh, the first uh, efforts into Netflix releasing a film every week this year, which means we've got a show every week, which is great. So, but regardless, um, Pete, set up the dig for us. I will attempt to do that. So this one from a director, Simon Stone, who I believe has worked in theatre, perhaps predominantly before this, at least I'm not aware of his theatrical um, cinematic work anyhow, uh, written or adapted, I guess, for the screen by uh, Moira Buffini. This one is a story of the an archaeologist who embarks on an important excavation job in a place called Sutton Hoo in Suffolk in England in the United Kingdom in the year 1938 and into the year 1939, I believe, uh, in the chronology of this thing. He is working on the land owned by Carrie Mulligan. Uh, He himself is played by the actor Ray Fiennes. And what happens is once he has agreed to take on this excavation project, he begins to realise that what he might be stumbling upon is actually even more historically significant than he ever could have hoped. But within this simple drama, I guess, from that description, we have 
illusions, illusions to the past and what it means to dig and find the remnants of the past, how it is this line that connects us to what went before. In the case of the Mulligan character, this is pretty clearly the loss of her husband, uh, who was a military man who's passed away previously. And then in the case of Ray Fiennes, uh, linked towards perhaps the loss of a child, although this is very subtly hinted at in the movie. Uh, and then also the future possibilities presented by a dig, what we can find that we didn't know we had before. Maybe in the case of a subplot that we'll come into later, new love, new relationships as well. But before we get into this thing, let's hear a little clip. What are they? Would you hazard a guess? Burial mounds, I expect. We're standing in someone's graveyard, I reckon. Viking? Oh, maybe older. Apparently local girls used to lie down on them in the hope of falling pregnant. <laughs> well, I've heard plenty of legends. Is that why you want to dig, Mrs. Pretty? Tales of buried treasure? My interest in archaeology began like yours when I was scarcely old enough to hold a trowel. My childhood home was built on a Cistercian convent. I helped my father excavate the apse. That speaks, doesn't it? The past. So where, where to start with this? I think the, the premise, I think, is, is a fascinating one. And I think the, the, the story that the, the film originally tells and certainly starts off telling is, is certainly one, one of its strengths. The kind of the interplay between um, Kerry Mulligan's kind of wealthy widower and um, and Basil Brown, the archaeologist, played by Ray Fiennes, who's from definitely from a more working class background. Um, well, shall, not shall we say, that's just a matter of fact here. Um, and I think the interplay between these two characters, I think, is, is fascinating to start with because they're both clearly from very different worlds. Um, they're both kind of, there's this very sort of, not weird dynamic between the two of them, just, just kind of them getting to know each other, knowing how each other works. So um, Carrie Mulligan's character, as you say, hires, hires Basil Brown to work on this dig. She's got a feeling that there is treasure under a particular barrow. He's not as convinced and he kind of goes to work goes to work on the dig and their bond I think is is fascinating and I think it, it it's telling a really it's just a I think a really interesting story about sort of people from two different worlds um colliding really in this way and that 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 those bits of the film I thought were, were really really well done and that that for me is the most interesting interesting bits at play here Pete did you yeah you and I mean adding into that positivity that you set out there Paul um for me, bracingly from the start of the movie is the way this thing's photographed because you've got this amazing like thirding. My yeah, word. like where it's it's a couple of things that I wanted to mention. One of them is the way that you've always got either sort of two thirds or three quarters of the screen filled with land or filled with the sky, and into that mix is the fact that our central character, at least the Ray Fiennes character, um, what did you call him? Sorry, Brown something Brown. Basil, Basil Brown, Brown, yeah. Basil Brown um, has previously published a book, and the book is on astronomy. So astronomy is all about looking up, whereas the dig is all about looking down. Astronomy may be looking towards the future, whereas digging perhaps towards the remnants of the past. Like, it's so elegantly set up as a narrative for me from the outset. And then, yeah, this landscape stuff, amazing. And a lot of these sort of follow shots, kind of handheld follow shots that they have on a steady cam, following characters that gives this, this kind of life to the 
movie, right? It doesn't all feel perfectly framed. Some of it is deliberately a little bit, you know, the camera's moving around a little bit. We're going down a path and we're following a couple of characters or we're having the characters walk towards the camera and moving backwards. Just these little flourishes that would be easy to miss but create this great atmosphere that really envelop you in the English countryside at that time. Of course, being that we are on the cusp of World War II, which is also a significant period of time for a number of different reasons. And so all of that stuff sets this up as a film that really um, got me under its spell, I think, in its at least opening third. Yeah, no, I, 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 can't, I can't disagree with you at all. And, and by, by like saying it's well photographed, it, it, it's just, it's stunning. It's an absolutely stunning film to look at. I'd love to have seen this on the big screen. Um, I think it just looks incredible. And that's down to it's my, a guy called Mike Healy has done the cinematography here, which is not a name I've heard of before, but hopefully will be again. I, I'm not exaggerating when I say this may well be one of the best looking films we see this year. Even some of the interior shots, like the lighting, the lighting, the way that the interior shots are staged, the way the rooms are set up, the way the lighting sort of streams through windows, it just looks incredible. The the long shots, the aerial shots of the boat, of the dig itself. On, honestly, like... There's so many times where I was just like, I just want to pause this and look at that shot and not finish the film. It looks that good. Like, absolutely. One of the best looking films I've seen in a while. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to throw in there, um, and I've just found this, so this isn't me knowing stuff, Paul, but uh, Mike Healy, the, the cinematographer, has worked on stuff like United 93, um, also, oh, one that we like quite a lot, My Cousin Rachel uh, with Rachel okay. Weiss, uh, worked yeah. on that. So yeah, a load of pedigree, a load of, I think, um, good projects and good looking projects. Oh, okay. This is the this is the <laughs> DOP from The Selfish Giant, which I talked about, I think, on the last show. And that thing right, is okay. lovely to look at. So yeah, that, that makes sense. Absolutely chimes with the stuff that you see here. But then, yeah, I mean, more on the thing itself, I guess, further than the way it looks. And I guess coming on to, for me anyway, the quote unquote problem, if, if that isn't too bold of a way to put it, uh, there's a major subplot in the movie which involves the arrival on the scene, first of Ken Stock. Ken Stock comes in as this guy who's going to take over control, wrest control from Basil Brown of the dig and oversee uh, the way that this material is preserved so that it can go to a museum and it's kind of, um, yeah, he's losing control on his project effectively. But then we also get Johnny Flynn and Lily James. Uh, both of them come onto the scene. Lily James... About this is about the halfway point. Yeah, the yeah, pro it probably ish. is. Yeah, yeah, around about there. And, and Lily James is married to another guy at the time in seemingly a sort of sexless, loveless marriage. And um, she seems like a little bit lost and, and pray, maybe eager to impress on the dig, but lacking in self-esteem. I think character is well-drawn, actually. Uh, Johnny Flynn, of course, this uh, handsome devil that we've seen in a number of uh, great projects over the last few years, at least, uh, comes on the scene as a guy who's going to help on the dig, and there seems to be an attraction there between this married woman and this, this Flynn character. But my issue here is not with the development of that relationship in and of itself, and it's certainly not with the performances. I saw someone say weird stuff about how oh lily james puts on a pair of glasses and we're supposed to believe that she's like an archaeologist this is a really good performance i think you need to like people need to watch themselves if they're just seeing an actress who's known for being pretty and then immediately using that as a way to bash them because i think it's a really good performance but my issue paul and i'm interested to know what you think is it takes away the spotlight from the relationship that is so, so powerful at the centre of the film originally. 
one of two things or both things happened, I think, here is that the um, the filmmakers, the, the writer, they either lost their nerve and didn't think that the core story between the Basil Brown character and the Edith, uh, Pretty character, the, the Carrie Mulligan character, was interesting enough to make this film a commercial success, uh, which would be sad. Or, late in the day, they realised they'd cast two relatively big names in Lily Flynn, uh, sorry, Lily Flynn, <laughs> Lily James and Johnny Flynn, uh, and decided to significantly bump up their roles. Um, I can't see that this has gone any other way, because this it, it I, I have no problem with the performances i have no problem with having other characters in this film you know it couldn't just the way it works couldn't just be a two-hander but if we'd lose complete focus on we'd lose complete focus on what is a very interesting and feels to be slightly different film to the one that i expected um and a quite engaging one and then drift into a very for want of a better word there's nothing wrong with necessarily commercial love stories but a very commercial very sort of trite overdone love story arc that just takes takes a lot of yeah it takes the focus away from where the film is is most interesting i think and it just feels bizarre because it happens at such a late stage in the film that the film takes this left turn and focuses on these two characters and and i don't really the, the only two reasons i can come up with in my head are, are those two reasons i've discussed it's really is a shame because i don't as much as I don't dislike the performances, I don't dislike the characters, I don't care enough for them, and I want to see more of the relationship between Fines and Mulligan's characters, for sure. So I'm with you on that one. It just feels like a bizarre about Yeah, term. and I mean, I, I believe the Edith Pretty character in the novel on which this is based is supposed to be 56 years old, and of course, Carrie yeah. Mulligan is some 20 years younger than that. So in and of itself, that's a decision, isn't it? Um, and, and you know, that's not shade on... I think Carrie Mulligan's a fine actress. I think it's a really good performance. And like we're saying, like really interested in that building relationship, irregardless of the backgrounds of these two characters, or maybe added to by the backgrounds of these two characters and even the age difference between the two of them, her and Ray Fiennes, uh, Basil Brown. But yeah, I'm with you. Like... and. What brings this to me to, or brought this to kind of to a head? And, you know, I will say at the end of all this, something quite positive, but at the film's close, there is a sequence that is so beautifully composed. And I won't spoil what that sequence is for people who haven't seen this yet. But in terms of the the pathos, in terms of the 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 power that it has, the sort of a raw emotional power that it has. And that sequence is cross cut with like a love scene between these other yeah. younger people. I don't understand that decision because so much of the editing in this project is so smart. Like we have so much, like the edits they have where two characters maybe are talking by a fire, for example, or at nighttime. And we see shots of the characters with, you know, a straight face or reflecting while the dialogue is the dialogue from maybe a few minutes earlier in the conversation set over the images of their reflective face. Like that stuff is, is brilliantly done. And then this crosscut piece at the end, I just thought undercuts like such a big moment, like the, the crescendo here of, of the movie, really, in terms of the emotional weight that it's built up. And, and I couldn't understand that. I couldn't understand that. So with that having been said, I think there's so much about The Dig that is excellent that I still really liked it. But I just wish that they'd gone a different way in terms of that subplot and, and those characters or maybe expanded the film to house them, you know, a little bit less awkwardly, perhaps. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I think that there is a lot to like here. You know, they, And I just 
I don't know. There's a really fascinating story to be told, and I feel like it just got short shrift, which is again, which is a shame because when it's uh, it's uh, it's stronger. This, and I think this is the kind of thing. This is not the kind of film I would normally be drawn to. It's not it just. It's not to say that kind of these these English period dramas are the British period dramas are bad by by a long stretch. It's not the kind of thing I'd be normally drawn to, and so I kind of put this on on not expecting to love it. And then from the opening moment, so I was like, okay, I really, really like this. This is very different to what I expected. So, yeah, and then it, and then it drifted into kind of what I expected it to be, which is bizarre. It kind of starts as one film and almost ends as another. I think it kind of brings it back around at the end, where it where it it does kind of regain a bit of focus on on the the Edith Pretty character and, and the Basil Brown character. But but yeah, it's, it just seems like a very bizarre narrative choice. It, do, it doesn't ruin the film. I will I will maintain that. I think there's there's still enough to like here outside of you know not, and that's not only the visuals, um, the performances are good but yeah very bizarre choice. Yeah, me. the performances are good and by and large the writing's really good as well and the and cinematography's fantastic. Like there's loads in here and I did want to say Paul because on this show and you know we're not the worst offenders but we'll very glibly sometimes say like oh there was a kid actor in it and the kid actor was rubbish. The kid in this is really good. The son of yeah. Carrie Mulligan's character. And the actor is a kid called Archie Barnes, who I think has just done two projects so far, playing Robert Pretty here. But that performance, he's great. I mean, the way he manages to deal with the like emotional terrain towards the end of the film was just incredibly powerful and, and sort of mature beyond his years as well. So, yeah, really impressed by that. So all in all for me, Paul, I was really impressed with this film. I just, yeah, like I think you have as well, caveat with the fact that narratively I kind of wish they made a couple of decisions slightly differently to the way that they did in the end yeah no 100% agree and maybe that comes down to the difficulty of, of adapting books to screen maybe on the pages of the the novel of which it's based maybe that 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 story made more sense I, I don't know I don't know the re I'd love to know the reason for it I, I really would but yeah you you would love to know but don't if you had a hunch if you you know as you were speculating earlier on isn't it because this is going and i'm not hating on netflix it's an easy target but isn't this because it's going to try to appeal to the widest possible audience on netflix the most mainstream of stri uh, streaming channels for movies and you know for that reason perhaps certain decisions are made because i mean i can't imagine it being for any no, other reason said either that or they've bumped up the roles because they got bigger names attached to them but i would imagine it's to probably make it a bit more commercially viable which is a shame because it, you know there is that's not the film that it's most interesting but it is it's it's a solid piece of work um definitely um and looks incredible yeah yeah absolutely and i mean i for me i'd go i'd go more than solid i'd go like if you've got netflix and you like drama watch this uh this is well worth your time watch this and not malcolm and marie i'll throw that one right out there uh but yeah that one's the dig available to stream on netflix now paul we should probably get out of here because this thing has gone on long enough but have you got anything to like give credit to or anything particular to shout out at the end of the show uh ozark as i said i mentioned earlier the reason the reason i've only watched that pretty poor selection of films this week is because i've been watching ozark which i'm pretty late to the party on uh just hit season three and we did i think seven episodes on the bounce so that's quite good going um yeah it's a really great show it feels very different i think it kind of got lost a little bit under the weight of the fact it's quite similar to breaking bad um in parts jason bateman's great in it laura linney's incredible in it um and it, it's a great show so uh, i won't spoil what happens but it's yeah it's a really good show so uh, if you haven't got to ozark yet i strongly recommend you do so 
Nice. Um, for my part, then, I'll throw out a video game one. This is usually what you do. Uh, but, uh, that would be um, the Dark Pictures uh, anthology entry, Man of Maidan, which was the first in this Dark Pictures series, following on from what the developer Supermassive Games did with um, Until Dawn, which I thought which was great. great. I mean, yeah, Until really Dawn good. is... Yeah, it's basically an interactive teen uh, slasher movie. What else do you want, really, if you like that sort of thing? But this one is pretty similar paul it's pretty similar if you know that game and how it functions you'll know this one it's got that kind of fixed camera thing that can be pretty annoying when you walk characters through spaces and have to adjust your controls but you've got like an ensemble group of characters who meet up they're going to go on a boat trip nothing could possibly go wrong uh, then they get the ship gets um sort of hijacked by pirates and you as the player of the game crucially have to make decisions at certain moments about like how you're going to respond what you're going to do if you're going to try and escape the boat or help your friends and this kind of thing the reason i pull it up on strangers really is because this is as close as you can get to a video game as a movie i mean it's effectively a movie where you get to make some narrative choices and so people listening to this might like that if you do i think it might still be on the ps sale at the moment for like eight quid or something so that's man of maidan check it out if you haven't and you like that stuff Apart from that, of course, get at us on Twitter at Strangers Cinema or on Facebook or on Instagram. All those uh, platforms are full of our hashtag content. Um, otherwise, I think I've run out of things to say. So I'll say goodbye for this week. Goodbye. We will be back uh, soon.